It's been a few months since I've stood here. I forget how it is. <laughs> I, I have the best seat in the house, I guarantee you. I, I always wonder when I'm standing here for the first few seconds about it feels different looking at you all than it does looking at most audiences. And as I was sitting there doing the meditation, I, I realized why. It's because um, I know that many of you have relationships. You're not just like individual people like an audience sitting in chairs. You have relationships with each other. And I'm aware that uh, you're doing a lot of things together. And I'm aware that you are capable of making collective decisions, that you are really an intentional being that I am standing in front of. And I think that's um, the difference in my experience. I have today um, an incredible sense of gratitude. Um, gratitude for being in a community with so many very, very talented and dedicated people. Uh, I, I feel grateful for your friendship. Uh, I, I feel very lucky that I've been going through life with you as a group. Uh, I, I'm grateful this, for this Sunday platform experience. Uh, it's a time, maybe the only time that I'm silent for three minutes. It's a time, <laughs> it, it's a time to focus on uh, what's important in my life. And, and, I, and I thank you for making this happen. I thank you for the chorus and the singing. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you all. I'm also very appreciative that 14 of you are adjunct leaders. You marry people. You know, there, there are not that many people in this community, but there are millions who want to be married by us. <laughs> and I really appreciate you guys who make time in your life to, to make that happen. I know that I, there are hundreds of years you do. Uh, I'm also appreciative and grateful that um, I'm part of a community that um, is able to celebrate the holidays and do it in a way that's um, consistent with my values. It actually feels good to me, puts me in the spirit, and, I, and I'm very grateful for that. And I'm especially grateful for all the support this community gives children. You gave them my children and everybody's children. And I think it's phenomenal to go through life with a community that supports children. And teenagers, we have the most effective, innovative programs for teenagers. I'm awed by what's happening with our teenage group. I, I, I'm... Um, also appreciative to be part of a group that takes care of each other and, and takes care of strangers even. Uh, I mean, it, I, I've been here so long that sometimes I have to stop and realize how remarkable that is to know that you have all these people behind you if you really need it. Amazing. And, and I love how open-hearted you all are to newcomers. I mean, you'd think that all the connections here... Um, There'd be an in-group, but I don't feel that. I feel like whoever shows up becomes part of the in-group, and I love that about us. Uh, I, I feel very grateful to you who serve on the board. I mean, you all are so competent and so daring. So daring. You know, what scares me about this group is I used to have a dream. And I've been here for, what, 30, 30, 33 years. Yeah. But I've had so many dreams for this place. And you guys have not only... If we fulfilled all those dreams, but you guys are dreaming on your own now. You're so far beyond what I can dream. 
I guess it's become a collective dream, and frankly, it's a little scary, but it's thrilling to be part of. I appreciate that there's enough energy here that we're going to try to transform our national association. I love the, 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 the political advocacy things that are happening on net, whatever. I know that yesterday, as many days, so many of you went up to Pennsylvania to register voters. I love that kind of attention. The fact that we sent 34 people to El Salvador to work in remote villages moves me. And that you all have contained, you have collected, just for this summer, you collected two shipping containers. How big a shipping container is? Two of them filled with school supplies, medical supplies. They went to 43 villages. 43 villages. I am grateful for the fact that we don't have a nickel in the bank, no endowment, no reserves, and every single year you guys raise $500,000 to keep this program going. When I just think about that, you know, I just don't, it's just beyond belief to me that we do that year after year. And that's just the normal stuff we do. I, I am very grateful that we decided that we're going to make this building accessible to people with disabilities. You know, when we built it, there weren't people with disabilities. <laughs> And finally, we decided, you know, who cares about the cost? We have to figure out how to do it. It's the right thing to do. I mean, if you can't embrace humanity, be a humanistic group, except those, those of us who age our way out of being able to come up the stairs or whatever. And I appreciate that we're going beyond that, that there's this dream of expanding this meeting house to raise among us a million dollars. But most of all, most of all, I'm grateful to be pioneering a new kind of religion. Today, as Mary said, our theme, humanistic spirituality, will be our theme for the Sundays and also the seminars. Humanistic spirituality is a new kind of religion because it blends the best of secularism and the best of religion. You know, it takes the reason, science, freedom that our secular life gives us and connects it up with purpose and inspiration and community. And what's difficult about the humanistic spiritual synthesis is that the secularists and the religionists have mindsets in which we're invisible. We don't fit into a secular or religious mindset. You know, on the spectrum, when the secularists look at us, they say, too religious. And when the religious people look at us, they say, too secular. <laughs> you know, we own a place in the continuum about this wide. But it's in the middle. It's in the middle. You know, what we need to be able to do, our challenge, is to make the humanistic spirituality option known, available to both ends of that spectrum, religious people, secular people. But to do that, I think we need to understand it better ourselves. We need to know how to express it normally in our lives. We need to experience ourselves the benefits of it so that we feel the vitality of it, so that we do want to and are able to create that bigger space in the public mind. 
the world sorely needs a new kind of religion. And shocking as it may be, you, me, we here are the leaders of it. Now, I know the who me feeling. Uh, believe me, uh, it is not within my identity to be making religious history. <laughs> but I know you here have looked around. Have you found anything else that's quite like this? If you have, let me know, because I think we need to join up with them. <laughs> Meanwhile, though, I think we need to be aware of what we are really doing. We have all these different innovative programs, but if you take from all of them, what we are doing here is creating a new kind of religion. My aim today is to show how humanistic spirituality, launched by Felix Adler, who's a professor of ethics and religion at Columbia, founder of the ethical culture movement. I want to explore why and how this is a new kind of religion. Back in 1876, when religion was the dominant social institution, it ran the schools, it ran the, the, the hospitals, the government. There was no big government, there were no public schools. They ran society, religious institutions. And Adler then predicted that the separation of church and state and the growth of public education would give rise to a secular society where science and materialism would dominate and the influence of religion would decline. Today, only 25% of Americans actually attend church regularly, religious services. And in Europe, less than 10%. Adler saw a problem with secularism. By definition, it avoids religious issues. Its aim is to serve the material realm of life, make pragmatic and practical decisions, let in science. And today, secularism pretty much dominates our life. The spiritual and ethical vacuum that Adler referred to, I think, has happened. We're in it. You can find virtually any kind of moral position on one of your cable channels at any time, defending virtually anything and everything. A new kind of religion, Adler saw, was necessary because we live in an age of science and we need to provide for the essential religious functions, the things that are essential to human beings. And so secular, in secular society, we need a new kind of religion that provides personal community, people knowing each other, inspiration, meaning, source of values. Now, I don't think I have to list for you the ample evidence that we have in our daily newspapers, media, that the time of moral vacuum is here. You know, if this is your first time here, I want to just apologize to you, you know. You know, you wander in here and all of a sudden you're told that you're the leader of a <laughs> religious movement here. But, you know, the rest of us are not in much of a different place than that. I mean, I think most of us wandered in here because we like the fruits of the tree and it takes a while to even understand the tree. Not even sure we're committed to the tree. But once you get a sense of what humanistic spirituality is, you've got to make a decision. How important is it to you? And are you going to, is it, is it, is it in your purpose in life? Is it important to, 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 to take a stand for it, to work for it? Um, but let's begin at looking at the question itself. I mean, do we really need a new kind of religion? 
I mean, what's wrong with the one we got, the old ones? Or, or maybe we're better off without any religion. It didn't work for me. What, what makes humanistic spirituality a new kind? And what makes it a religion? And how is humanistic spirituality going to benefit us personally, you personally, or the world for that matter? So let's go through the questions. Why we need it, what it is, and how do we create it? So let's start by looking at the necessary functions that religion provides. And I've served on, for several years now, a religious leaders task force that is working to provide more accessibility for people with disabilities. Now, many of the people on that task force have uh, children with disabilities, and Lonnie is one of them. She has a son, 10 years old, multiple sclerosis, born with it. Every morning, she gets up at 4 o'clock. She lifts her son out of bed. She, she washes him, dresses him, feeds him, lifts him into his chair. At school time, she takes him and the two younger children to the van, wheels them there, lifts them out, puts them in the seat, buckles them in, takes the chair in the back, folds it up, lifts it into the back of the van, going to school. The first, uh, when she brought him to kindergarten, they said, um, we can't admit him. We're not properly equipped. So Lonnie uh, took Prince George's County schools to court, and now all children uh, with disabilities can go to Prince George's County schools. When she took her kids to summer camp, the director said, we don't accept children with disabilities. Lonnie says, why? Our staff's not trained. So Lonnie arranged to have the staff trained, and now there are several children with disabilities at that summer camp. Lonnie, 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 how, how, how do you have the stamina? How do you have the courage? How do you have the will? Lonnie says, my religion First, my church gives me love and helps me when they can. But when I'm exhausted and discouraged, I go to God. I ask God, where am I going to get the strength? And then I find it. God, give me courage. And it comes. I saw God give me hope. Hope, I need hope. And I start feeling better. I can't see God, but I feel him, and I know I'm not here in this alone. But I get mad. I get really, really mad. Why me? Why is my life so hard? And God answers. I hear him. He says, to make you stronger so that you can help my children in need. Why do we need religion? A community of cooperation and encouragement a source of inspiration and purpose, particularly when life feels too hard, too difficult, and values to guide you, to organize you, when you don't know what to do. Values like stars to navigate by. And that's the essential role of religion. And those who don't have it are weaker for it. Now, Lonnie treats her religion the way I treat my computer and my car. I enjoy what they do for me, but I don't ask how they work. <laughs> Lonnie just knows that when she uses her religion, it works. No questions asked who'd want to burst that bubble. Got time for that. But traditional religion did not, does not work for me and for millions of others. Some years ago, Reverend Pat Robertson gathered his flock 
They all held hands, gathered his TV audience. They all touched the TVs. And they prayed together because a violent hurricane was about to hit his church. Remember that? And their church prayers were miraculously answered. It hit Boston, killing five. Fundamentalist, fundamentalist preachers, they say surrender to God. Do the right thing. And God's will is defined by church, minister, president, boss, father. But the decline in the religion, the power of religion, influence of religion, isn't because it's superstitious and it's not because it's paternalistic. The death of God is not because we can fly above the clouds now and see that heaven's not there, nor because we can prove that life comes from natural evolution and that God's week of divine creation is not literally true. Nor is it because of the evil people do in the name of God. The big problem for religious faith is it doesn't have a coherent theory of evil. If God's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, why do innocent people suffer meaningless atrocities? If God doesn't know enough, does he not know enough? Is he not powerful enough? Is he not loving enough? to take care of innocent people in evil's way. The weakening faith in God, I mean God is a literal being watching over us, listening to me right now, ready to intervene with some kind of grace or punishment, either now or hereafter. It means that most people now who attend religious services they're actually secularists in their personal lifestyles and values. Because secularism, not religion, now dominates our life. What the media inundates us is with, with secular values, not spiritual values. Very few of us have um, some kind of purpose greater than our own success. Most of the time it's about our success, not our greater purpose. And when we feel down, what do we do? We purchase something new, take a vacation, get some drugs. That's a secular approach. What I believe in most is myself. I mean, that sounds like wisdom. You have to have faith in yourself, right? Most important thing. If you believe that might makes right, what does that mean about your values? It means you better be on top if might makes right, right? And you should do anything to get there. And if you can't be on top, you should go along. <laughs> you may got the might. Or you hide. If success is your purpose, security and luxury and power are your reward. Pretty, pretty good reward. Security, luxury, power. I'll take some of that. The values of success have to end up being do whatever you need to do. Whatever you can do, what do you need to do to succeed? Do it. If that's your ultimate value. And who's to say success and might are not right? In, in the secular world, everybody has a right to an opinion, right? In the secular world, we also don't, we don't lie. Never you lie in a secular world. You spin. 
I mean, laws are only man-made. I mean, even the Geneva Convention can be spun, right? For a higher good. Deeds are measured by your success. Where's the grand moral justifications that we have now? I mean, even when we, when we talk economic policy, we talk economics, we talk politics. Where's the, is there language of moral justification for war? For anything. Secular society promotes primarily material values and leaves an ethical spiritual vacuum. Now, when Felix, Felix Adler traveled in Europe, he liked to visit cathedrals. And to avoid the crowds, he would go in before dawn be there at the first light. And so one morning he is waiting in the dark and he realizes that in front of him somewhere a woman is praying aloud. Her family has many problems and she's asking for help. He wonders, this woman is talking to an invisible being, imagining that she's going to be rescued. Can that be sane? And then he thinks, to believe that nearly every person in every culture in every century who've ever lived is insane, can that be sane? (laughs) Adler was accused of being an atheist, but he claimed to be a theist. And I share this position. It's dangerous in an age of democracy to idealize a benevolent dictator and call it their god. Along with all the great religious leaders of history, I believe that there's a higher standard for religious truth. I believe that God and good are one, and the experience of God dawns on us in the act of doing good. It is blasphemous for religious leaders to place a man-god in the sky and kneel before it as if that image were an idol. God is a poetic image to describe a very important human experience, to convey some essential spiritual knowledge about human well-being. A blindfolded woman holding scales symbolizes justice, but if all those statues disappear from the face of the earth, does justice and injustice disappear? A wedding ring symbolizes the marriage. If you lose the ring, is the marriage over? Of course not. The religious question that each person has to answer is not whether you believe in God or not, but what the concept of God represent. What's that word intending to describe? What complex phenomena in human experience is that word intended to represent? Each religion presents a very different image of what God looks like or how to worship God. Or, but they have a common ground. There is a shared common core of values. The great religious teachers are on a mountaintop all by themselves. And they describe a very similar vista. Each religion has a path to the top from their side of the mountain. And they look at the other paths and they say, I've got the true path because I can see my prophet at the top of my path. So you're on the wrong path. You have a false path. But the essential question is, what do we know about the view at the top? What's the synthesis of those religious paths? 
We spent the platforms last year looking at that question. What is our common ground of the, with the religions and what's our common ground with each other? Remember, we went through Hinduism and Judaism and Buddhism and Christianity and Islam, and if you don't, they're all on tape. <laughs> Humanistic spirituality proposes to you that there is such a thing as supreme being. That supreme being is a real phenomenon. And it's worthy of your appreciation, and you ignore it at your own loss. Supreme being is not an object of worship. It's not even a noun. It's a verb. Supreme being is a way of living. It's a bliss to be experienced. It's an ideal possibility to be sought. Supreme being is an experience that's universal. I mean, common to all people, and anybody can have it, experience it, accessible. Second, it's worth it. It's very desirable for you individually, for us individually, for us collectively. And it's recreatable. We can learn to make it happen. Which is the goal of a religious community, which is the goal of our community, being able to make it happen. To make it happen, we need some language like supreme being. Because people without religious language, if you didn't have that religious language, you'd still experience supreme being, but you wouldn't pay much attention to it. You wouldn't have the words to stay and think about it and talk to other people about it. You wouldn't weigh its importance to you. Without the word for the experience, you don't string together the different experiences that you have in order to come up with some sense of commonality. Without the word for it, we don't learn to value it. And we don't learn to recreate it. Let me present some definitions and examples of what I'm talking about. The phenomena itself. A phenomena that fundamentalists often call the hand of God or the presence of the Holy Spirit. But for humanistic spirituality, it's the experience of supreme being. The most common and the easiest for us all to, to have is the experience of natural beauty. Below, there's a river running through. The mountains are along the far horizon, and if you look to the sides, what you see is shades of green forever and ever, covered by a very big, big sky. Standing there, looking out there, I feel the intensity of beauty. Beauty. I flinch. You know, I actually can't. I'm a T, so the feeling thing is hard. I can't take it very long. I, I actually cannot look at it for more than a few seconds without looking away. It's intense. The beauty's intense. But it goes inside of me. When I go and back and sit down and work again, I can feel the different energy in me from it. And it stays with me. Like, I, I could feel, I bet you, you could feel it now. You have a mountain vista in it. When I described it, didn't you feel that sense of beauty? It stays inside of you. What is the phenomena that's so pleasant, so energizing? Supreme being is something that you're part of that's greater than you, far greater than you, and you experience it only on a level of feeling. You can't fully comprehend it. You can't fully capture it. But you like having your touch on it. Feels good. Imagine yourself at the beach. You're lying on soft, warm sand. The sun, hot in your skin. You're covered with 45. <laughs> you listen to the waves. They're rolling in. 
pounding on the beach. You think of the vastness of this ocean, touching all the continents, teeming with the mystery of life. The power of the surf is just always there, always was, now, forever, just pounds and pounds. In that moment, you're feeling part of something greater, great, great, great. The independent web of life, it birthed you, it sustained you, and for some unknown reason, when you go and sit by it, there's a sense of peace and power and serenity and timelessness, and it feels good. Natural beauty is a positive, mysterious experience, and it's common to everybody. The night sky, stars glowing, limitless universe, infinitesimal me. What a miracle to be here looking at this galaxy. Something vastly beyond my imagination has somehow begotten me. These examples of supreme being are experiences of reality as it really is. We don't understand it, but we can feel the direct contact, the life force. But to make it recreatable, to bring that supreme being experience into the human realm, we need more than an experience of beauty. We've got to understand what it is. Now, some say that these experiences are the grand creativity of God the Father, evidence of his power and just majesty. But science proposes that there's a mysterious concept, the organic principle at work, which in fact does parent us all and might be depicted as a father. What we call life depends on the right combination of unique elements eliciting from each other a whole greater than the sum of its parts. Now, our solar system would be destroyed if a single planet threw out of orbit or crashed into the sun. Each planet is part of an interdependent web of unique forces, centrifugal, gravitational, atomic, all of them in balance so that it's there. The interaction of, of elements, different elements, Combining an interdependent relationship is what a living organism is. That's what a living organism is. The interaction between water, air, soil, plants, animals to create oxygen and carbon dioxide to fuel the plants and the animals, that create an atmosphere that has a temperature that makes life on Earth possible, that whole interaction is what life is, the organic principle at work. The organs of your body, each of them unique, essential, and they work together to create you. You're a being greater than the sum of your physical parts, yes? Yeah. Distinct sounds, notes, you assemble them in a certain way, beauty. Workers create computers, spaceships, schools, hospitals, not any of the people involved. None of them personally and individually could have possibly done it alone. Supreme being is our experience of the organic principle, the experience of ourselves as a greater whole. Now, when flying to developed countries, um, about one quarter of all the passengers are missionaries. You recognize them because they're carrying their Bibles. And I never talk with them. 
at the at the, at the time of uh, when uh, we were in El Salvador when they had the three earthquakes I met a missionary there and he came to preach on the radio and his message was the earthquakes were God's punishment for not being faithful to the church and it so outraged me I was choked with it and I cannot talk to a missionary <laughs> but this one was friendly very curious we exchanged stories he learned that I was a minister but not exactly what kind As we prepared for landing, he said, we need to spiritually prepare for landing. And he put out his hand to me and the man on the other side, and he offered to pray. I declined. So afterward, he wanted to know why. I, I pray to give us a safe landing. I have faith that God can protect us. And I told him, my faith is in the people who designed and built the airplane. Those who created the computer guidance system the air traffic controllers, the maintenance crew, and the pilots. Their collective creation is so powerful that we can fly and we can land safely. Flying is a miracle. It still feels like a miracle to me. And it's created by a web of natural forces and people in whom I have faith. I believe that is the God that protects us and to whom I am infinitely grateful. This summer, 34 people went on a teen trip working in El Salvador. Many teens did not want to leave. They wanted to return as soon as possible. One stayed in the village to live there and teach there, arranging with her mother to have homeschooling instead. Why the attraction? They worked all day in the sun, 100-plus degree heat, carrying cinder blocks, mixing cement, shoveling dirt. They lived and slept with a family in a one-room hut, some sleeping on hammocks, Ross being watched by rats as he slept. The latrines, no toilet paper unless you carry it, smelly and dirty, if you had a routine in your house, a latrine in your house. You ate a lot of corn, beans, and rice. Most got diarrhea, some fever and vomiting, and had to take care of each other when they were sick. No TV. This was not summer camp. The most common words to describe the trip, best weeks of my life. They had arrived in a remote village. They were greeted by all the villagers standing out there smiling, hugging them as if they were loved ones, although they never met. The teens had raised the money for the materials to build the first community structures in two different villages. They were also providing in another village dental care supporting uh, Dr. Susan Munner, and medical care supporting Dr. Howard Dubowitz. Now, they were subsistence farmers. They earned $300 by selling surplus in a good year, crops. Or, or they might teach in a school, get $75 a month. The teens worked with them day in and day out. They played with them. They heard their stories, and they left behind a clinic in Masatepeque and a school in Hacienda Vieja. And hundreds of people without dental pain, skin disease, moms with nourished babies, they left behind hope that there would be care when I'm sick, that my children can go to school. They left behind hope. The villagers had very little to give, but they were generous. Generous was your, the experience, because when you weren't there, they'd wash your clothes. 
They'd open their hearts, their whole homes. Whatever they had was yours. They fed you. They gave you their best. You felt that generosity. In this visit, every person, villager, teen, adult, experienced something that pushed them beyond themselves. Something more than they would have ever dreamed or created by themselves. Something that was unique and special. Something that mattered. Something supreme. And that's why they're going back. Now, if you had an experience of creating something greater than yourself, being part of something greater, I know that you remember it. But if you didn't have a vocabulary for supreme being, maybe you thought it was just a lucky happenstance, a a one-time thing, something that uh, you never really sought to create anyway, and therefore you're not recreate. But the fact is, you can recreate it. And you can trust the organic principle because it really works. I mean, it is, after all, the pro-life force. It's stronger than evil, stronger than chaos, and stronger than individualism. And that was proven, settled, last June by the NBA Finals. (laughs) The greatest basketball stars play for the Los Angeles Lakers. They're the Western champs. They're perennially the world champs. Four of them have been voted among the top 50 people ever to play the game. They include stars, superstars, Shaq, Kobe, Karl Malone. Everyone knew that they're going to win all the games. Detroit had no stars and no chance. Result, Detroit dominated every game, no contest. Lacking stars, each Detroit player had a special role. Each thought and acted like a team. Individually, eliciting the best from each other, creating a whole greater than the parts. In fact, so great, they're the best in the world. The organic principle wins. It can be used by anybody, anybody who chooses to learn how. And if you don't believe, two months later at the Olympics, it was proven again because our dream team of international stars were beaten by a less talented, more teamwork team. Supreme being is a team sport. And learning how to live it starts with your faith in its reality, your faith in its power, your ability to recreate it. Now, finally, three. How do we recreate it? How do you create supreme being? God the Father, a poetic metaphor, the purpose of which is to inspire us and to describe in its story how God's children should act so as to create supreme being. That's the purpose of the story. But God is never on your side. Never on your side. You know, I don't care how long you're batting up there. You know, this ain't going to help. You're not on your side. You have to be on God's side. You have to be on God's side. That's the only way you get to experience supreme being. Being on God's side means that you apply the organic principle to your life. Humanistic spirituality, like all faiths, has values. You have to live them in order to get it. The spiritual values are of two types. The values are two types, spiritual values and ethical values. Spiritual values are personal strengths. They empower you to act out the ethical values. Now, spiritual values start inside of you. You know, we human beings are amazing natural capacities. It's just incredible what we can do. I mean, we have the abilities naturally for language, tools, music, reading, writing, calculating, learning from the past. 
sensing right and wrong, reasoning, empathy, planning ahead. I mean, it's amazing what we can do, and more than that. However, none of those capacities emerge in a person unless they're cultivated by your social environment. That's by your community. And it's valued by the individual. That's you. If you don't value it and your community doesn't cultivate it, you don't get to enjoy that. For example, half of humanity doesn't know how to read or write. And fewer master planning ahead. And how many master develop their moral sense of right and wrong? The spiritual strengths we need are identified by positive psychology who is publishing nowadays research about spiritual strength. And the five most important, the top five, gratitude, love, curiosity, hope, and zest. Gratitude. Gratitude is powerful because it's, it's, it's a clear st- statement to yourself. I'm part of something bigger. I'm, gr- I'm grateful to my family, to my friends, to my co-workers, to my community, my society, humanity, nature. I feel gratitude. I am aware of my connectedness. Gratitude is the ability to ground your sense of yourself. Your sense of self is grounded, not in me. Your sense of self is grounded in me as part of a greater whole. And that's why gratitude is the doorway. That's the first experience that's necessary to be able to embrace a feeling of supreme being. And it feels good, doesn't it? The second is love. It's caring about others just like you care about yourself or maybe better. The ability to realize that you can live in a sea buoyant with love. You'll be able to float if you just allow it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The spiritual strength, that faith that that's true. That human beings are loving beings. It's there for you. You have it to give. Curiosity. It's wanting to know about this larger, greater whole that you're part of. Hope is trusting that the organic principle works. Hope is the Detroit Pistons' faith in themselves when no one else had any. Hope is believing that there is a better, there's a state of supreme being, that it's possible. Zest. Zest is the energy to reach out, reach out to that greater whole to take a risk, to do something great. Zest is, flows very, very easily when you experience gratitude rather than isolation, love rather than fear, curiosity rather than complacency, hope rather than doubt. The good news, each of these feels great. They're their own reward. Gratitude feels good. Love feels great. Curiosity makes your life interesting. Ahas to spice it up. Hope inspires. Zest makes you glad you're alive. They're all... They're all wonderful, self-rewarding. Why not? Let's claim them. But the second kind of values, the ethical values, they're not like that. Ethical values are not good experiences in themselves. And that's why you need the spiritual strength to apply them. Their five ethical values are behaviors that create a healthy environment, capable of generating supreme being. It's first seeking and representing the truth as best you know it in all your relationships. Truth. Being kind, especially in the face of cruelty. Being fair, righting the wrongs that you find. Keeping your agreements, generating trust. And fifth, forgiving by holding people responsible, not by punishing. Ethical values create the conditions in which humans are happy and thrive. And if you doubt it, consider living with lies, cruelty, injustice, deceit, and vengeful. 
Does that feel good? Or would you rather be in relationships which are truthful, kind, fair, trustworthy, and forgiving? When you put it out there, isn't it clear? There is a difference between supreme being, healthy conditions, and not. And we don't need to tolerate the not. We can learn to create the other. But that's the hard part. Our aim here at the ethical side is to become ethical agents capable of cultivating supreme being. And to do it means coping with behaviors that prevent the organic principle from operating, from taking effect. There are sins. Those are the mistakes that actually damage our supreme being. There are vices. They're just habits that destroy the positive environment. And there's evil. The intentional aim to exploit or abuse the web of interdependence. And to be an ethical agent means being sensitive to notice when damage occurs. Oh, we just lost Supreme Being. What happened here? You feel it. You feel it when it goes if you're paying attention. To know how to correct those mistakes. To understand the consequences if you don't. Know how to avoid them. Our challenge is to face the discord around us and to create harmony. To transform moments of cruelty to kindness, from falsehoods to truth, unfairness to justice, distrust to trust, vengeance to responsible forgiveness. And when we do that, we repair the web of interdependence. Now, like the founder of this ethical movement, I'm not an atheist unless you ask me to have faith in a supernatural man-god that's more than a metaphor. I'm a theist who believes that a state of supreme being is possible. It's an experience that's available. That it's the source of my life, my vitality, and the promise of a better world for all is in recreating it. I believe that the most important and satisfying purpose in my life is being in service to it. Now, it's not to say that secularism and materialism don't have their place, but research shows that our material circumstances have a little effect on our satisfaction in life. You know, you win the lottery, you get a better job, you get a better house, and within months, life's back to normal. You're back to normal. What shocks us is going to, going to the world's poorest places where people don't have painkillers when they hurt, they don't have antibiotics when they're sick, they drink polluted water, suffer from diarrhea much of the time, they never get a vacation, and they never retire and can't dream about it. What shocks us is they're happy. They're happy. Just as happy, maybe more happy than us who have a lot of stuff. Humanistic spirituality starts and ends with the recognition that on our continuum from birth to death, all those events that happen, they don't determine the quality of our lives. What does is the spirit with which we live it. We can bump into those events with the lowest of energy or the highest of energy. What matters is to bump into those events in a way that we can create supreme being. The strength and the motivation to be an ethical agent, a facilitator of supreme being, starts out with gratitude. Recognizing that you live in the context of a greater whole, just like a fish in water. Our choice is clear. Self-absorption, alienation, isolation, that come from the illusion that we're in it alone. Or... Gratitude for being connected to a source of infinite possibilities, resources, and joy. 
gratitude for being so connected. You know, in, in Islamic hell, you actually live in heaven, but you have to read the story of your life every day. You have to notice all the chances you had to be a healer and did not. All the consequences of the mistakes you made and of your inactions. Hell is not being able to go back and correct a single one of them. The message, be grateful now for your life because it is an opportunity to elicit the best and seek the highest. This feeling of gratitude, realizing that you are positively connected, you're never alone, that's the foundation. That's what makes love make sense. That's what makes all the values make sense. It's knowing that we and ye are in part connected in one. For myself, I'm really grateful to being part of this thing we call an ethical society community. And I, and I mean that very individually and personally and collectively. As we start the season right now, I'd like us to make the very most of our collective talents. Let's elicit the best from each other. Let's do great things together this year. Let's let people know what supreme being really means and how to experience it. And as we leave today, may you go with your heart filled with gratitude so that the grace of it can be with you always, or at least until we meet again. Thanks.